God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. Good morning. I'm so glad you guys are here. Those of you who are joining us online, thankful to the Lord for the technology and the ability to be able to do that and be with you, at least through the modern miracle of the uh, worldwide interwebs. I'm praying that the tubes will handle all of the information that they can fit uh, so everyone gets what they need. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord? Those of you who can, please stand. Today's sermon comes from Revelation chapter 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. At that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask for your help, not just in the preaching, but I ask on behalf of your people, your church, for your help in receiving. We ask not simply for information, but we, we plead with you for transformation, a change, renewal, rebirth, reorientation, course correction, whatever it, it is that you know that each of us needs. Lord, we trust you to supply it, and it comes through the seemingly foolish act of preaching and sitting under the preaching of your word. And we are thankful that you take the wisdom of the world and reveal it for foolishness, and you take the foolishness of God and reveal it as true wisdom. We thank you and ask for these things. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. All right, so sermon series title, the, the subtitle for this whole book of Revelation is, what does it look like for Jesus' church? What does it look like for Christians to overcome when under attack? Do you want to... Do you want to be able to overcome, make it through, even possibly thrive and flourish, uh, despite the fact that you are under attack? Is that what you want? Yes. Great. Well, then you're in the right place. I hope to help you with that today. 
This is the second part of Revelation chapter 11. We treated, we're treating this chapter as two parts. So last week was part one. I did most of, we, most of the uh, quote-unquote uh, quote Sunday school lesson. This is what uh, in pastor world and in theology world we call exegesis, like some of the heavier brain work, the, the download inf- of information that you need uh, in exegesis in Sunday school, like what is this, what is that, what is that? Like we did that work last week, so you can refer back to the previous sermon for that background. But the main point of this sermon is the same main point of last week's sermon, and that is the destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus. The destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus. And I have four supporting points, and I went through them last week, three of them, and the third one I only briefly touched on. And this week, I'm going to add a fourth, so the third and the fourth are definitely where we're going to really camp out on today. But our four supporting points for that is that God protects his people to prophecy. He tells John to measure the temple and those within it. This is, this is for a demarcation. He's marking off and declaring and proclaiming over us and all the world, this is who belongs to me. This is a relationship. This is a people. This is my place of relationship with them, and I'm going to protect it. No one, the world, Satan, sinners, and my enemies and rebels, they, they are not permitted to come in here and trample on this. They're not permitted to intrude or invade. And God protects us thereby to send us as his temple out into the world so that we can prophesy. And when we say this word prophecy, I want us to think the, the big umbrella understanding of prophecy. Prophecy isn't only or simply or merely a foretelling of future events, but if you're doing that, then you're telling the truth of what will happen. And you can only know that because God tells you. All prophecy comes from God. But prophecy in its fullness means telling the truth. Prophecy means telling the truth. Not only about what is to come, but the truth about who is, who was, and is to come. The truth about how he has designed and the purpose that he has designed his universe for. To tell the truth about what he says about the course of human history and indeed your own very individual life as part of his people, the bride of Christ, the church. Number two, our prophecy arouses persecution. If you tell the truth about Jesus, if you tell the truth of Jesus, who is creator, intergalactic, universal Lord over all, sovereign over all, the definer and determiner of all things, if you tell the truth about him, then a world that has fallen and blinded by darkness and indeed loves that darkness and hates the light, if you tell the truth, your truth-telling will arouse persecution. And let us not be tempted to believe that there is a way to tell that truth in such soft or such sophisticated or such cool ways and manners that we will never have to suffer any sort of persecution. That's a major point for today. Number three, our reward comes by persevering through persecution. Our reward isn't found by escaping persecution. But the very path, the very road leads straight through persecutional territory. In fact, part of the reward is directly linked to what we suffer. And number four, that Jesus is the only reward worthy of all the cost. He is the only reward, the only benefit, the only treasure, the only prize that anyone, that any of us could ever pursue that could ever, ever be worth 
any and all the cost. So last week's main point of the sermon is this week's main point of the sermon, that our destiny, the destiny of the church, is bound to the destiny of Jesus. Bound. There's no extricating it. There's no pulling it apart. It is bound, tied up in. Our path as the church is revealed through four parts in this chapter, and it follows what? The path of Jesus, which is protection, witness, persecution, and reward. You see the, the career, the ministry, the life ministry, death, and the resurrection, and the reward of Christ in his gospels, in human history, here in Revelation chapter 11. And if these two witnesses, if you join me in believing that it's likely that these two witnesses are a representation of all of God's people in all all times and in all places, those who believed in Christ pre-messianically and those who have believed in Christ post-messianically, then the path and destiny of the church is wrapped up in Jesus' path and destiny. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then his sheep will follow where he goes. They'll follow not just to where he goes, but they'll follow the path. If Jesus is the husband of the bride of Christ, then where he goes, his bride goes. His bride follows. I want to remind us of a few interpretive principles that we're going to need to use with Revelation to help us because, as I said last week, Revelation chapter 11 specifically is notoriously either one of, if not the hardest passages in the Bible to even start to land anywhere with an interpretive solid ground underneath your feet. This is great difficulty. So number one, this is apocalyptic literature, and therefore John, the Apostle John, is under no burden to provide the explicit literal meaning behind every symbol or image. If he was under that burden, do you know what he would do? He would explain it, right? But he's under no burden. All that Revelation does reveal, the Lord has seen fit to keep some of his meaning shrouded in continuous, mysterious, difficult symbol, imagery, metaphor, vision. And therefore, we really... What's incumbent upon us as his people is to focus on two things, knowing what God is doing with this thing, this symbol, or this vision, and number two, recognizing that we need him to do that thing that he's doing. If you're sick of it, then you're finally understanding it, but if you're not sick of it, I'll say it again, and I don't care if you are or aren't sick of it. I don't know what the alternator is in my, in my Jeep. I can't point to it. Right? I changed my oil uh, uh, two days ago. Stuart McGinnis helped me, and he didn't, point out to, to, he didn't point out to me where my alternator was in my Jeep. He knows what it is. He's holding back on me. But I don't know. I, don't, I can't point to it. But I do know, one, I know that I need it. I know what it does, right? I know what is being done with this alternator, and I know I need one. So similarly and analogously, that's the way we can approach this. Now, our selection of the text this week starts with the words, but after, but after these three and a half days, I'll run you briefly, briefly through the bullet points of what I laid before you last week, which is the temple is God's people and Christ. The temple here is a symbol. It's representing a holy and sanctified and protected place of relationship. It is a place of relationship of Christ, who is the lamb and his people, He tells one church in the first seven letters to these churches in Revelation, he goes, I'm going to make you pillars in my temple. 
and throughout the New Testament scriptures. That is the language that the writers of these letters of the New Testament continue to use, which is, you are now building blocks. You are stones in God's temple that he is making, with Christ being the cornerstone of this temple. And, and the, this great city that ought to be the holy city, but it's referred to the great city, which is uh, almost a sarcastic, almost an ironic, ironical use of the word great by God going, oh, this great city, it should be the holy city of Jerusalem, where, but it's the place where our Christ was persecuted and crucified. So now this great city, referred to symbolically as Sodom, Egypt, the great city, Babylon, this represents the unbelieving world, the unbelieving world in all times and all places. If the temple and if the witnesses represent Christ and his church in all times and all places, then this great city is the world, possibly, in all times and all places. And the Lord has decided, he has ordained, I will permit my enemies, I will permit your great enemy, Satan, his demonic friends and brethren, I will permit those who sin against me and you and rebel against my order and authority, I will give them their time. I will lengthen the leash. I will give them some rope. They are permitted to trample the great city. And these two witnesses I've already identified for you. And they come and they tell the truth. They bear witness. They bear witness with all of their lives. They testify to who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and what that means and it comes with a message of grace and of justice. It comes with a message of grace and forgiveness, mercy over sin, and the loving, the loving warning of God's oncoming justice for those who will reject his grace and therefore, no, 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 I, I want the bitter cup. I demand the bitter cup. I can take it. I'll drink it for myself. And what do they get? What do they get? They get killed. The beast arises from this bottomless pit. First time in Revelation, we've seen the beast, literally. And I can get to this in a little bit, but uh, if I need to, but the, the beast is, is Satan, representative of Satan. Some might go, oh, this is the Antichrist. Okay, representative of Satan. This is the authority and power to do sinful, wicked acts that God himself has handed over and permitted for Satan to be allowed to use. So, there, there are, this passage has some different interpretations. Some of you go, no, the witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Okay, I disagree, but this is not a thing to divide over. I think, the, I think what God is doing here and why we, what we need him to do with it works either way. Oh, there are two individual dudes. No, it's, it's the church. That's fine. But there are some who would say there are parts of the Bible that are open to interpretation. And I would go, sure, depending upon how you're defining open to interpretation. Because here, man, Christians with prayer and much Bible study, fervent desire to understand, can land in two different places on what some of these things specifically are. And that's okay. That's, that's where the Lord has left us. He's left us room here to try to dance and suss some of these things out. But do not, listen, I do not want you to suffer from what I and those of you of my generation, maybe the generation before mine, and those of you who are in generations after mine, you millennials and generation Ys and so on and so forth, we have been brought up in a cultural and societal ethos that says, well, whatever you interpret something to mean, that's what it means. Oh, it means that to you, but this, it's, this is what it means to me. 
And I would say that is a terrible, not only irrational, illogical, but that is a terrible and dangerous way to go about, of all things to interpret, is a dangerous and terrible way to go about receiving the word of the Lord. Because even if we find this area still open to interpretation, we need to know that when God says something, he does mean something. Even if there's double meaning, right? Oh, all of these scriptures concerning Moses, the great shepherd who leads God's people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. That's exactly what that means, and there's double meaning. There are two meanings, but they work together toward the ultimate meaning that God is giving to us, which is he's putting on display the truth and the, great, and the greater truth of the greater Moses, who is Christ. So let's be careful. This is, in a way, open to interpretation. And whether we know exactly what God means on some of these things, we need to recognize, and should we learn it, submit to what he means, over and above what we think or want him to mean. So last week's sermon, there's your background knowledge. We see an unbelieving world who, tormented by and angered by the testimony of these witnesses, they celebrate the death of these two witnesses at the hands of the beast. Why do they suffer death at the hands of the beast? Because our prophecy arouses persecution. If these two witnesses had not told the truth of Jesus to a world that does not know him, believe in him, or love him, then they would not have been killed. The reason that they were killed is their prophecy, their truth-telling. And so we come to the destiny of the church, which is bound to the destiny of Jesus. So my first question as we address this specific passage, what does it cost the two witnesses to obey the Lord? To complete their calling. What's it cost them? For what purpose? For what purpose were they anointed, set aside, ensured protection, and then sent out? What did it cost them? They were set aside and protected in order to prophecy, to tell the truth to the world about God and man about God's redemption and salvation, and about God's oncoming judgment. They were set aside and protected in order to suffer persecution for obeying by telling the truth. They were set aside and protected in order to die as a final prophetic act. Their very lives given over in suffering for this truth testifies to their true conviction of this truth that they're willing to die for it. What did it cost them? It cost them in their lives, and it cost them their lives. All that you might sacrifice and set aside, the the dreams, the aspirations, approval, different friendships, relationships, opportunities in career, opportunities in relationships with important people or fun people, people that you would prefer to hang out with, spend time with. The, The loss of financial gain or cultural gain or societal gain, and not simply loss, not only simply losing what you might have, but also not receiving, not getting your hands on what you would like to have. That's the cost in life. If you're going to obey Jesus and do and live according to the purpose and path he's laid out for you as his witness, 
all the way to the point that you'll lose your life. I don't want to lose my life for Jesus. Well, I, I don't know that anyone does. I don't know that anyone's super happy about that. Not even Paul with as braggardly and swagger, swaggerish as he might come off seeming to some of you. Let's cut him some slack and be charitable. I don't think he's as boastful as some of us feel like he is, but not even to him was he super pumped about having his knees kicked out from under him and having his chest shoved down onto a block and having a Roman executioner chop his head off. But you can die quietly in your sleep surrounded by your friends and family in a hospital room or hospice or in your own bed. Everyone will lose their life. As you lose your life here on this earth, will it be a life lost in the course of the cost and the reward, the cost and the purpose that you were given? You ever heard, the, you ever heard that idea, cost-benefit? Some of you know. Some of you like. Some of you have done the like the Dave Ramsey, the the financial. Uh, what is the financial peace university thing? It's great. It's super. All right. We I've talked to some of you about it. Uh, it's it's very useful, right? And some of you do business. Some of you might even be business owners or entrepreneurs. Run your own business. Ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? That nothing in life is free. How about we try this one out? I'll put it up on the screen. Every, everything worth anything will cost someone something. You ever heard that? You ever wrapped your mind around it? Do you see the truth in that? When you look at your work, your career, your family, your hobby, your health, your wealth, your education, everything that you will want Every good benefit, reward, or treasure you seek requires a coin from some account of resources you have. And I just call that account your three Ds, your days, your dollars, and devotion. That encapsulates everything that you have that you could spend or sacrifice in order to get the thing that you desire. So we spend the resources that we have from our days, our dollars, and devotion in order to find the rewards or benefits that we're after. I mean, it's, it's even a, a laws of physics truth. If you want to send a rocket that way, you have to send an equal amount of fuel via combustion and fire that way. If you want to walk from this side of the room to that side of the room, it will cost you the 20 seconds, depending upon how fast some of you walk these days. It'll cost you the 20 seconds that it takes, and it'll cost you the 1.3 calories that it costs. It is an inarguable law, seemingly ordained by God himself, that nothing is free. Now, is, is anyone at least willing to go, uh, uh, well, I got a little pushback? Because if you do, I'm so glad you have that pushback. I'll just assume. You go, well, hold on, Pastor Matt. Everything worth anything costs someone, something to someone. Well, what about that free gift of God in salvation? Ah, I got you. Right? There's, a, there's one thing that is free. Dear friends, I would tell you that the cost of that salvation is the steepest cost ever. That's the steepest and highest price that's ever been paid. It cost God the Father his son. It cost God the Son his life. And it costs you. It does cost you. No, no, it's a free gift from God. We don't do anything. We can't get it for ourselves. Yep. Yep. 
and yet there is a cost. How does that work? I've often said this. Many people believe that they can make deals with God. Oh, no, you know, me and God got this deal. I'm just going to be a good person. And uh, when I get to meet him, you know, he's going to see that I'm a good person. My good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. And, man, we, we got a deal. And I would tell you that God makes no deal other than one deal with anyone. And that is my righteousness and my inheritance I give to you, but your hands are too full. You have your sin and your pride and your worship of anything and everything besides me. So for my life, I'll take from you your death. See, God doesn't want to take away your fun or joy. God is the only God who does not steal from you. With all that we give to him, he does not steal from us any good thing. The only thing God looks to take from you is what kills you, which is your sin. So he says, I've got a golden crown and I've got princely robes. You have three nails and a crown of thorns. It costs you your death. It costs you the wages of sin. So that now your hands are unburdened and open and you can receive what you can't get for yourself, but God can give. It does cost that. Not only is there a cost attached to getting a thing. Some of you know this. It doesn't just cost something to get something. Where's the hidden cost that not enough people count? The cost in keeping it and having it, yeah? Your house might be worth the cost, but it doesn't cost simply a down payment. And closing costs, what else does it cost? The continuous mortgage, right? It, it costs continuous utilities. You got to fe keep feeding your home the HOA dues or maintenance costs. Right? Some people buy the house and go, I can afford the mortgage, but you can't afford the insurance and taxes, and you can't afford the maintenance, you can't afford the HOA. It's not just simply a matter of counting the cost to get a thing, it's counting the cost of keeping the thing. That dream spouse, let's, not, let's, talk, let's, let's stop talking about money for a second. That dream spouse, that dream man, that dream woman, that dream husband, that dream wife, all that it might take you to get that person, what does it take to keep that relationship it costs something. You know, I don't like the way that this sounds, this cost thing. Well, it's true, though. I, 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 I'm not, you don't have to like it. But I believe this is an accurate description. What does it cost if you, no, no, it doesn't cost, I love my wife. It doesn't cost me a thing. Well, then you are a well-meaning liar. And if you're, and wives, if your husband is saying that, just know that he's expecting the back rub to turn into something else later tonight. Okay? He's looking to get something. Is that okay? Was that out of balance? I'm probably going to get a text or an email about that one. Sorry. What does it cost to keep the relationship that you now have? It, it's going to cost you forgiveness. It's going to cost you the, the ability to forgive and swallow the debt of wrong that your spouse owes against you when they sin against you and not require them to repay that or, or make restitution. It's going to cost you forgiveness, and it's going to cost you humility, lowering yourself. It's going to cost you the humility of learning to communicate and talk the way your, your spouse talks in a way that they need to hear, even though that's not the way you talk. It's going to cost you, it's going to cost you putting their needs above your own. It's going to cost you great sacrifice. Any of you who are married, any of you, just raise your hand, or at least not. Yes? Are we telling the truth? And some of you are like, I don't feel like it's cost. Then that's good because you're ahead of the curve, because the reward, this is where the sermon's going, the reward is so great that it is a cost 
and you've counted it. And you don't begrudge the cost. You're thankful for the reward. Fair enough. I want, that's where I want us to get. So when I say cost, I don't just want you to think money. There's time, there's energy, there's vitality, there's mental and emotional, there's spiritual resources and bandwidth that you have. <laughs> and everyone, Christian or not, we all recognize that you only have so many of those days. You only have so many of those days of youthfulness when you're just made of rubber. You don't have to stretch for anything. You only have so many of those days when you are now walking in wisdom because the days of enfeebled bodies and enfeebled minds are coming for those who live long enough to get there. You only have so much of those things to go around to provide for all that you need and want. These two witnesses, what does it cost them? It cost them everything. It cost them everything. It cost them everything to walk in and complete their purpose. It takes me to my next point of the introduction. Um, it brings me to my next point of the introduction. Everyone these days talks about passion. Follow your passion. Follow your dreams. Find your passion. I'm a very passionate person. I have a passion to start a business. I'm passionate about learning guitar. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about that. Great. I am not one of those going to passion. You just touch it. No, passion. Got to have it. But not enough people recognize and care about purpose. Everyone has passion. Not enough. Not everyone has purpose. Everyone starts with passion, but it's purpose that carries you through to the reward. Years ago, I had a passion to learn how to play guitar. And then, even though he's gracious and generous, the, the low-level heat and temperature of his frustration, my fr our friend Brandon Flurry, who agreed to teach me how to play guitar, I stopped at C, G, and D. You know why? Because it hurts my fingers, <laughs> and, it, and it cramps my hand. I had a passion, but I, the only reason I wanted to play, learn to play the guitar because it, it seemed like it'd be fun. I had the passion, but I had no purpose. There was no end game, no goal toward learning guitar toward. It's not totally true. I learned enough to be able to sing uh, and play a song, uh, a love song to my wife, and I got that done. Focus, focusing on the passions and desires of our heart without counting the cost means you're not, you don't have a purpose. It'll put, it'll put you in danger in two ways. As a Christian, evangelizing, being generous and gospeling your spouse or your kids or your friends or your coworkers, anyone. If you don't count the cost, then you probably haven't, you haven't considered a purpose. You only have passion, and it's a dangerous place to be. Here's why. You're in these two dangerous areas. Either one... You won't get the treasure that you passionately want because as you pursue it, the costs start to mount up. And you didn't recognize it would take that much. And as the costs rise, the treasure's value lowers and you'll give up on the treasure. You'll stop running the race. You'll stop halfway. Like so many who have quit college in the middle, Maybe not because they had a catastrophe or circumstances out of the control, but when they realized the cost of tuition and the books and the cost of my mental and emotional anguish and bandwidth, this is just way too much. I don't want to be a doctor that bad. That's okay if someone recognizes that. But if we don't, if we don't count the cost and have a purpose, then our passion won't carry us through 
to find the treasure. Or the other great danger is that you will get the treasure, and I think this might be even worse, that you, you will get the treasure, and it'll become a curse to you. The value of your treasure and what you have now gotten for yourself sours because to keep it, it just keeps costing. All of this, all of this is relevant, directly relevant to us as God's church, as his people here in this passage. Those with purpose have counted the cost and they've judged those costs by the value of the reward. And the two witnesses know their purpose They know the purpose and the reward that that purpose leads to, and they have counted the cost. They persevere under the persecution, and they receive their reward. Let's look at that reward. Verse 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Do you see Jesus through this? mirroring the path and destiny of Jesus. Amen. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you see the destiny of Jesus paired with the destiny of these witnesses? The first taste of the reward for obeying God and taking up his purpose for your life. Do you see the first taste of the reward? The cost of the, do you see what happens? What did it cost them? All of it, their lives. And what is returned to them? Their lives. That's the first taste of the reward that is found in Christ. The Lord Jesus himself and also therefore his two witnesses, his church, are raised to life. Though you die, yet you will live Anyone who believes in me shall not die. Mary, do you believe this? This is how that math works out in Christ's playbook. Their death has been reversed and the cost of their life has been returned. It's not even just that good. Do you understand? What kind of life does Jesus himself Inherit as his reward for dying on the cross. Resurrection life. The body of Jesus is not simply put back into his earthly, humbled manner, but he's given a resurrection body. The kind of resurrection body that is promised to all those who believe in and love and belong to him. The cost is not just returned, it's redeemed. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a new, better kind of life than the witnesses had ever known. A new and better kind of life than any human being will ever know. This is never ending, can't be killed again. Resurrection, mind, heart, spirit, body, life. This is the kind of life that is worthy of being called upon and entering the presence of God on his throne. We can't go up to meet God in his unfiltered, fully revealed presence. Not in these bodies, not with these minds and hearts, but with the resur- we are going to be given a resurrection personhood, mind, heart, spirit, body that is built to flourish under the unmitigated light of the glory of God. If, if you understand uh, investment, 
This is the unbelievable deal. You mean I, it costs me $100 to put in, but then I get $1 billion? See, uh, a fine investment is uh, like at least the least best investment is where you go, I put $100 in, didn't go so well, I got my $100 back. At least you break even. The reward of Christians is not to break even. It's far better than you can imagine. It's far better than you even dare to imagine and believe and put your hope in. But it is. Because the life that you lay down as a living sacrifice for the Lord is not simply returned to you. It's redeemed. And now the reward itself is the very thing that you lost. It's wrapped up in that package. The real cost of suffering, trial, persecution, death for Christian is redeemed. All that you lost for the sake of being a witness is not only returned, it's, it's returned to you in better shape than you've ever had it. Reward. Number three, reward comes, our third point, reward comes by persevering through persecution. These two witnesses, Jesus' church, will persevere through the persecution. Why? Because God has protected them. How does God protect them? He doesn't protect them from getting shot or beaten. He doesn't protect them from getting their heads chopped off. No, he gives them a protection of the temple, the relationship. He gives them a protection that is secured by the Holy Spirit. You have my spirit, therefore you belong to me. No one can take my spirit from you. You belong to me. Everyone, who put, everyone my father puts in my hand, no one can take them out. Not even you. You can't take yourself out. Do you, know, do you know why Christians, real Christians, true Christians, will persevere to the end and you will stay in your faith your whole life no matter what befalls you? You'll, you'll persevere because God has protected you and preserved you by his Holy Spirit. You'll keep with God because he's keeping you. Even when you're not keeping God, he'll keep you. How do you persevere? You, you're preserved by God's Holy Spirit, and you seek and pray for and find anything and everything that will stir up and awaken and reinvigorate passion for Christ, and then you submit to God's purpose for your life. You count the cost. You find it totally worth the reward of Christ, and then you too. Join the church and the two witnesses as a witness. Protected for your prophecy as your prophecy arouses persecution and you persevere through that persecution on your way to reward. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. In Revelation 9, three woe, woes are announced. Right? We're not talking Keanu Reeves, woe. Right? We're talking W-O-E, a woe, a great calamity, a calamitous prejudgment, a warning. And the second woe that was announced and promised has just been fulfilled. It's just come to pass. How is Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 13, a woe? That sounds like pretty good stuff. I mean, two dudes get killed, but then Jesus goes, nope, takes you back, sees, and reverses the whole thing and makes it better. How is that a woe? Here's how. It's a woeful warning and indictment to those who have killed Christ and his people. It is a woe. It is a woeful warning. Here's what I mean. With the prophecy, the persecution, and the death of God's own people, and then with his mighty act of reversing the worst evil that Satan and God's enemies can do against God's people, it is reversed and made even better 
And it stands as a warning from God the Father to the world saying, you killed my son. You killed my prince and you killed my princess. You killed my children, you killed my sheep. You now see that I don't let that stand. Nothing that you can do to my son or his church. The worst of it, none of it will stand. I will reverse those effects. In fact, I will pile on and heap on not only a reversal in return, but a redemption that multiplies the benefit and reward of all that you took from my son and his people. Woe to you. You are in danger. I have the power to and I will reverse every wicked thing you can do to my son and his people. And I present to you in this woe now a kind and generous and merciful and long-suffering offer, God says. Will you stick with your false God and his purposes? Or will you become one of mine and find your salvation in me? Because I've shown you my guarantee and pro- my promise to my people that all they lose will be not only returned but redeemed because they are mine. Won't you come? Judgment is in store. It is. But salvation is at hand. Verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, underline that, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, that has come. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. And for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth, the time for that has now come too. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. This is a fulfillment of so much. You can literally find passage after passage, book after book of the Bible, and find so many things fulfilled just in verses 9 through 15 through 19. Among them is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, which I'm going to read. You won't see it on the screen. I just want you to hear, but you can go look for it yourself on your phone or book, Bible book if you want. Why do the nations rage, Psalm 2, and the, why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us kill Christ. Let's kill God. We don't need him and his rules. We don't want his authority. We know what is good for us. We know how to run this place. He who sits in the heavens laughs. A more explicit translation or feeling of translation here would be He laughs in derision because that's what it says. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. All you kings, where are you coming from? What's your capital city? My king, my son, and I've set him on his holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, here comes the warning and the love. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Find your salvation in Him. Because the, the alternatives, alternative is that He will be angry and you will perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the testimony of the witnesses. This is the testimony of the church. This is your testimony to give and the truth telling arouses persecution because the nations will rage and non-Christians will rage those you love will rage they'll misconstrue what your meaning is they'll make fun of you they'll dismiss you you'll lose relationships you'll lose trust it'll hurt but we tell the truth because that truth is the truth that is the message not only of God's just wrath, but it's the, it's the message of God's merciful, merciful salvation. In verse 17, you see, I told you to underline, the description of Jesus as he who is, was, and is to come is now shortened by a third. Throughout, throughout the revelation so far, Jesus keeps on being referred to as he who is, was, and is to come, and now they just call him he who is and was. You know Why? Because at this point, something dramatic has changed. One of the most significant things to ever happen has occurred. Those worshiping him now call him who was and is because he is no longer the one who is to come, for he has come. His arrival is now a present reality. His ruling and reigning and the establishing and the reigning of his kingdom over the earth and all the universe is now a present reality. In verse 17 through 18, God has always owned and reigned over the universe. Well, it looks like Satan's had some room to play. It looks like they get to do some stuff. Yeah, under God's own sovereign authority. Satan cannot do anything the Lord will not permit him to do. With Job, he can't touch Job unless he has permission from God. What's happening and being declared now is that he clearly and demonstrably rules and reigns. The moment for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess has arrived, and even those who oppose, uh, who oppose him, even now, they have every argument and excuse yanked out from under their feet because all that should justly and rightly be done to convince anyone and everyone that Christ is Lord, that he's not only wrathful and angry, but he's ex- just unbelievably merciful. All the arguments and all the proof, all the evidence has been put on display. All kingdoms in this moment are now dismantled. None are now permitted under God's permission to stand in, a, in a opposition or alongside of his place. And there is now no rival or challenge that is permitted to stand. Jesus, point four under the big point. The destiny of the church is bound to the destiny of Jesus. Point four, Jesus is the only reward worthy of any and all the cost. 
He's the only reward. You guys know the story of Rocky? I'm a big movie guy, so I've seen all of them, right? You guys know the story of Rocky? And what I don't mean simply uh, Rocky 1 or Rocky 3 or 4. And Rocky, come on, let's all agree. Rocky 4 is the best. It just is. I'm your pastor. You just need to trust me. I'm not talking about any of the individual movies. I'm talking about the entire narrative arc of Rocky, from Rocky 1 to Rocky number 47. Do you know the whole story of Rocky? Do you know it's a tragedy? The entire narrative arc of Rocky is a tragedy. Very inspiring tragedy. Some great moments of victory. But the story of Rocky, and I'll fight you, is a tragedy. Did Rocky have a passion? Oh, yeah. He had, he had that eye of the tiger, yo. He had passion. Did Rocky have a purpose? Yes. He wanted to be somebody. He wanted to be the champ, and he wanted to not be a chump. He was clear on what he was after. Did he count the cost? Yes. Rocky knew what the cost was. He knew it would cost him pretty much everything. And you know what? If you're familiar with where Rocky is now in the narrative, Rocky is... Uh, it, it really has pretty much cost him everything. I'll tell you, so spoiler alerts for those of you who have not gotten to the 41st, 42nd, and 47th movie. In the narr narrative of Rocky, do you know where he is now? His wife, Adrian, his beloved Adrian, has passed away. His relationship with his son is distant and damaged. He's a crippled old man with brain damage. He can barely see out of one eye, and he has brain. He has, he's dying of cancer. Someone else is the champ. And his best and oldest friends are dead and gone. He lives in obscurity and anonymity. His riches are gone, and he, does, he no longer has the youth or vitality, strength, or time that he needs to be able to get back in the ring and show everyone that he is still the champ, and he still isn't a chump, and that I should not be forgotten. It's a tragedy. Do you know why? Was the reward worth it? Maybe for a time, but not anymore. Not for Rocky now. He got the reward, but it didn't stay. He got the reward, but it didn't stay. The, the reward didn't keep rewarding. In fact, as the reward fades, it's still got a price tag on it. It keeps on costing him. I would tell you, that the story of Rocky is found in the Bible. Did you know that? You're like, um, what version are you looking at, Pastor Matt? Well, the Bible's name is Solomon. And the book he wrote is Ecclesiastes. And it's virtually the story of Rocky, the tragedy of Rocky. Solomon was the greatest, most powerful, wisest, and richest man who ever lived. He had it all. He had good looks, a sharp mind. He had more money than he could ever figure out to even spend. He had the approval of men. Kings came and bowed to him and brought him gifts. He had the approval of women, hundreds of wives, and a hundred of sex slaves. He had all the knowledge and learning the world could afford him. He could hire any, any scholar, any teacher, any mentor. And he finds that with all the passions and desires of his heart, finally in his hands... He can even say that the cost didn't cost him that much because he had enough gold stores to be able to cover the costs. But in the end, the cost just wasn't worth the reward. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. 
It's the, story, it's the tragedy of Rocky and, and Solomon. Over and over again, repeatedly, because he doesn't want you to forget it. He wants you to have it in your head. Solomon calls life and all the things that we could have, he calls it vanity. He calls your life a vapor. He says it's all futility. He doesn't say there's no good stuff out there. He's just like, there's, at some point, there's nothing new under the sun. He says, all the greatness, power, fame, fortune, good looks, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Come on, man, I got a golden toilet and I own a panther. Right? You know where he, the wisest man who ever lived, lands? He says this. It's all worthless. It's all futile. It's not worth the cost. He says, I'm paraphrasing, he says at one point, it would have been better if I had been stillborn in my own mother's womb than to live this great and awesome dream life that everyone around me wants and they all envy me for. The tragedy of Rocky and of Solomon is true. It's true. Ecclesiastes is true. And Solomon is right. And he's totally wrong. When you go back and read Ecclesiastes, which I urge you to, Ecclesiastes is not only, it doesn't only consist of, but it's full of bad theology. Whoa. I thought you liked this book. I just became a member. Now I'm reconsidering. Ecclesiastes is full of bad theology. And the Bible presents it as such. Rocky and Solomon and Ecclesiastes. It's the very true and real destiny of those who don't have salvation and redemption in Christ in view. This is the only rational, logical, metaphysical, metaphorical, philosophical place that anyone could land in to draw a conclusion about what life means. If God isn't there, if Christ Jesus doesn't come and redeem the cost of this life, the wages of our sin, if Christ is not in view, then Solomon has it perfectly right. And even the most heinous and most oppositional atheist that the world has today doesn't actually believe what they say because they still think that there's stuff worth fighting for and that we should pursue some sort of ethical or moral obligations. There is still some sort of right and wrong and there are still some things worth fighting for. Uh-uh, no, no, no. The wisest guy in all of the universe is driving you into a corner saying if there is no God and there is no Jesus... There is no cross, and there is no empty tomb, and if there is no occupied throne with this Lord on it, and I don't know why you're just not handing yourself over to doing whatever you feel like. I don't know why you don't just go and kill yourself right now, because, listen, great, try to live a long, long life, but at some point you're going to be old and feeble, wearing a diaper, and your family's going to tuck you away somewhere if they have the money. I don't know what you're doing trying to fight for anything or stand for justice I don't know what you're doing, because it's all futile. It's meaningless. That's all true. If Christ is not in view, if the reward of God himself is not at hand, I'll tell you this. There is no truly great reward. There is nothing then that is worth the cost of anything, really, unless Christ is in view. You see, the, the story of Rocky and Ecclesiastes is not the story of the church. Our destiny is not bound to the destiny of Solomon or Rocky 
our destiny is bound to Christ, and he is in view. I tell you the truth, someday someone else is going to live in your house. For less than a year, I've been living in the house of someone who just passed right before we took possession of it. He and his wife lived there their entire married life, their entire adult life. They grew old there. They died owning it. And now they never knew me. I never knew them. Strangers live in their house. All the work they did. If you've been to my house, all the weird work they did on the house. It's, it's mine now. Strangers will own your home. All your possessions will be in a landfill, or at best, they'll show up in a yard sale. At best. Someday there will be a generation that carries your DNA and maybe even your name, but they won't have any memory or knowledge or value of your life and what you stood for. They'll have no clue of what your story was. None of the cost is returned, and it keeps costing you until you die, and the reward rusts away and it stops rewarding. If Ecclesiastes is right, and if Christ is not in view, and if the reward isn't your purpose. The two witnesses of Jesus, his church, for them the cost is totally worth it. The reward is for them itself, God himself. It's not simply heaven, it's not simply a spiritual or physical paradise, although it it comes with it. But heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of and hate hell. Heaven is only a place for those who love Jesus. And if you can envision any paradise with a paradisical body, for eternity in a paradise. And if you can imagine being happy with that forever, but God himself is not there, then you do not have heaven. You do not have the kingdom that God offers as reward. Because the central thing that makes heaven any sort of reward is God himself. He and his kingdom, his design, his destiny are everlasting, new, every day. The temple of God, Christ and his people are protected and preserved, and no one ever gets to enter it and trample it. Every last iota of the cost that it takes for you to gain and for you to keep Christ isn't only returned, it's redeemed. It is redeemed. So none of the cost, none of the trial, none of the persecution, none of the tears are futile, even though they are real. But they are not futile. Not a single bit. Each and every last jot and tittle now serves the passionate purpose of Jesus and his Christ. Christ is the only reward that keeps rewarding, and he's the only reward that can turn the cost itself into the reward. The cost itself gets turned into the reward. The reward of having God through Christ, break into three things. He is the only reward that not only can't be lost, but keeps rewarding eternally. It is a crown of unfading glory, a treasure and reward that Jesus himself commands you. He says, your motivation for believing in me, walking in faith, and obeying me, your motivation needs to be that you will store those treasures up in heaven Where neither rust, nor moth, nor fire, nor thief can touch. Friends, it's not about whether or not it's good to get a reward. There is a strange and foolish and well-intentioned and very noble-sounding belief and value that I've heard so many talk about these days, especially in the church, that says, oh, you shouldn't do it for a reward. There should be no reward. Man, if if you've experienced a blessing or benefit from it, then you, you know what? That's probably just selfishness, tainting it. You need to do good for simply the sake of, of, of doing good. Don't, don't look for a reward. 
That is not in the Bible. Our Lord says, there's the reward. You are to go for it. It is yours. It's not a question of if a reward is good or bad to pursue. My questions for you is, one, what, what reward do you want? Two, who do you think you're going to get it from? And three, what are you willing to do to get it? Depending upon the answers to those questions, you may very well ought not to seek that reward. Or it might need to be the very reward that you've been your entire life around. He is the only reward that can't be lost, and that reward is rewarding eternally. Number two, the cost associated with gaining a reward isn't just returned to you. Those costs are redeemed. Number three, all that you lose in gaining Christ is counted as reward. That's what Paul says. Because the cost is returned and redeemed, the cost is part of the reward. There is no greater reward per purpose. There is no benefit to bend your entire life around and even lose it. There is nothing worth the sum total of all of your days and dollars and devotion except for Christ. There are other worthy, worldly, human, you're living this life, benefits and rewards and treasures, investments that you can righteously make. But those investments and those costs, for the Christian, they get aligned with the great reward you seek, which is Christ himself. So friends, what ought we do to do about this? Number one, know and believe. What should you do? I want you to know and believe. You need to fill your mind with this, believe it. Believe it and trust it. I need, you to, I need you to think that it's true. I need you to know that it's true. Number two, I want you to believe and therefore find hope and courage. How should you feel? I want you to find hope. I want you to find courage because this is a chaotic world with many people who, not, not only me, but they all have loud voices and loud noises and they're arguing and the people of the internet are very angry. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are not Christian. Some of those voices are around your dinner table. Some of those voices are at the Thanksgiving table. And all those voices about all the things and all the chaos and all the oppression and all the danger and all the worry and all the pro... I want you to... That's confusing and it's chaotic. It'll kill you. I want you to believe and find the truth and clarity that brings you hope and courage. So you, now you know, despite what's happening in the world, despite the risk, despite the costs, now you're on your path to knowing what I am to do. Everyone else thinks we're paralyzed. Everyone else thinks we gotta st- sit still. No, the Lord is on the move, and he calls me to be on the move. Now I, now, now I have the emotional content. Now I have the passion that I need to move and start and, and obey the Lord in the next step. I'm going to find hope and courage. The Lord is my reward. Number three, I want you to count what it costs to obey the Lord. You need to count it. You need to think about it. You need to pray about it. Your days, your dollars, your devotion, it'll cost you. It will cost you. What are you willing to suffer? What are you willing to have withheld from you or what are you willing to lose that you have in order to tell the truth of the gospel with your words and deeds and find your reward in Christ, your eternal reward? Maybe even more appropriate for some of us. What chance, what risk, what dangerous path are you willing to walk What are you willing to sacrifice in order to disobey the Lord and keep your sin? And is that going to be worth it? Will that be worth it? Number four, take your passion for the Lord and commit to his purpose. Our church is now ferociously and aggressively repeating over and over again, why are we a church? Why did God make us Restoration City Church? It's to make disciples who know and follow Jesus. And they... And they follow Jesus and they, and they try to think and feel and they try to say and they try to do the things that Jesus does. 
because we have seen the glory of the reward of Jesus himself. And so we want to make disciples who see and enjoy his glory and want to see others who do not know him behold his glory and find him. That's our purpose. That's our purpose. I have no interest in helping you become a better conservative or a better, a better Democrat or liberal. It's not even on my radar. I don't care about that. That's kindling. It's going to burn up. I'm looking to see my way to serving you and fighting for your joy in Christ so that you will be a Christian who brings prophetic truth of grace and mercy and justice to those of your political persuasion. And you know what's going to happen when you go to your conservative friends or your liberal friends and you tell the truth about Jesus to them? You know what they're going to do? They're going to cast you out. If you're conservative, they're going to call you a liberal. If you're liberal, they're going to call you a conservative. You don't have a home here. You don't have a home here. I want you to count the cost. And I want you to recognize and take your passion for the Lord and commit to his purpose because the reward in the home is in here. The reward in home is in heaven. And number five, I want you to keep the eyes of your heart on the reward. You know what Rocky would do when he had a fight coming up? He would take a picture of his opponent and would put it on a mirror. Every time he's washing his face, every time he's shaving, every time he looks at it, he sees his purpose. This is the guy I got to beat. This is who I'm fighting. This is the objective. I got to beat this guy. Those of you trying to do uh, weight loss or, or exercising, trying to get in better shape or better health, many of you, you, you take a picture of, of yourself at your worst when you're like, oh, lo- like you see yourself for the first time in a long time, really, in reality, you're like, ah, oh, ah, ah, right? And you keep it. And then maybe, maybe even if you're a dude, like you, you have another picture of Ryan Reynolds and you put him on the mirror too, right? And you go, oh, I don't want to be like that and I do want to be like that, right? But you, you keep the reward in front of your face. You don't forget the reward. I want you to keep the reward of knowing Christ, belonging to him, and your ultimate, eternal, forever, untouchable, undismissable, unstealable, unwreckable, untrashable reward. It's worth anything and everything. I tell you this in closing. The destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus. Romans chapter 8. You won't see it on the screen. I just give it to you for you to hear. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Why don't you pray as I read the word of the Lord? And you just pray the word of the Lord back to him. For all who are led by the spirit of God, they are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father, And the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are his children, then we are his heirs. We are heirs of God and fellow inheritors with Christ, his son, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The destiny of Jesus is to receive his inheritance and reward The destiny of his church is to share in that same inheritance of Christ. Just sit for a moment in prayer. What what reward, what benefit, what treasure has captivated your mind? 
Is it a relationship? Is it a career? Is it material? I doubt any of you have to think about a bad thing in and of itself. But what reward has captivated your mind and your heart? What benefit, what treasure commands authority over your checkbook and your credit cards? What benefit or reward are you modifying and changing and bending your own personality presentation in order to achieve a relationship? I don't know if that's you today, but the next question is, do you find the need for repentance in your heart? Because the reward you seek has been elevated to the above, above the reward of having God, Him, Self, no matter what you get, keep, has taken away, or is kept from you? Have you elevated the worthiness and the value and the beauty and the shininess of knowing and being close to God? If that's true, then you've taken a very good thing and you've turned it into a God thing and that's a very bad thing and now is the time for you to pray and repent to the Lord and he receives you. He's not sucking his teeth right now as you pray. Going, oh, look, oh, I see. Hmm, look who finally got wise. No, he's going, ah, oh, there you are, you're back. Son, daughter, oh, I love you. I showed this to you. Thanks for trusting me. Count the cost in your head at the moment. And find Jesus worthy as you pray. I'm going to urge you, you can open your eyes if you would. Go ahead and grab your communion elements from your chairs nearby. If you're at home, we're about to begin worshiping the Lord through communion. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. I love you. It's, a, it's love that I say that. But I want to love you and serve you. The Lord says, those who take this cup and eat my, eat my body, right? Like, you, if you don't really have me and you don't believe me, if you don't believe that I took the wrath of God for you, and if you don't believe that my blood covers your sin, then uh, if you do that, then you're just telling me that you can handle it yourself and the purpose of this communion is to tell us that God himself, the son of God, Jesus, has taken it on our behalf. So if you're a Christian, don't take this. If you are a Christian, what you have in your hands is the cost of the reward. And Jesus counted it. And he says, I go to the cross for the joy that was set before me. To have my body broken and crushed under the wrath of my father for sin. And have my blood poured out so that my enemies, my, my sinful enemies can be washed clean and my father will look at them like he looks at me. And his reward is Philippians chapter two, the name above all names at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and he'll be known forever as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the, end, the beginning and the end. That is what you hold in your hand as you take communion with Christ. You take in not only the promise of that reward, but you take upon yourself the living sacrifice cost as his church, because our destiny is bound to his. After I pray, you'll take communion, and then you can worship the Lord through giving, sacrificing, counting the cost of obedience, worshiping the Lord with what he put in your hands. You can do that at the box back in the back, or you can do that online through our app, through our website. 
If you need help, you can come find me or one of the leaders you see on the stage, and they can help you if you'd like to do that. If you remember this church, this is our solemn, not only obligation and duty, but it's our solemn honor to worship the Lord with our money. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue to worship the Lord in music and singing. Thank you, Lord. My thank you is not good enough. It doesn't cover it. But it's what I have, and Lord, I, I know you take my thanks, and you do more with it than I can. Lord, I pray that disciples of Jesus would be made here amongst us. People who have the purpose of Christ, protected by him for that purpose, to know and love the truth and tell the truth with their very lives. People who believe that even the cost itself becomes part of the redeemed reward in having you and you having us. I pray that that word would be received in power and authority by the character, the name, the title, and the person of Jesus in whom we pray. Amen. I love you guys.